Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, gang, one of the most useful notions I've ever had the good fortune to encounter was something first uttered to me by uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama one time when I was interviewing him many years ago. He said something to the effect of, everybody's selfish. That's the way we're wired as a species. But if you're going to be selfish, you should be wisely selfish. You should do it the right way. And wise selfishness takes into account the fact that what really makes human beings happy is caring for other people. This notion has been a central part of the Buddhist platform for millennia, but is now being borne out in scientific research. And one of the best minds when it comes to this research is Emiliana Simon-Thomas, who is my guest today. She's the science director of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, where she's a co-instructor of the very well-subscribed Science of Happiness online course. She is a leading expert on the neuroscience and psychology of compassion, kindness, gratitude, and other so-called pro-social skills. That's kind of the opposite of uh, anti-social skills, which many of us have mastered. In this conversation, we talk about the difference between empathy and compassion and why empathy is not enough on its own, how we can become happier by training ourselves to be more compassionate and connected, why human connection and relationships are at the root of happiness and this is uh, scientifically validated, how humans are wired to care and be generous and what gets in the way of that wiring, what we misunderstand about love and a more scientific definition for that culturally fraught term. I should mention that this is a bit of an older interview that we're taking out of the vault for a few reasons. One, it's summer and we wanna give our tireless staff a bit of a break and two, This really is one of my all-time favorite episodes and one that many of our tens of thousands of new listeners uh, may not have heard. So very happy to bring it to you once again. Quick item of business first, though. In this interview, we discuss how to make ourselves happier through generosity, which is literally part of our biology, and how the pleasure of caring for other people means we'll do it again. But practicing generosity can be hard in a world where time, money, and affection can feel scarce, even when we really, really want to think about ourselves as generous people. Fortunately, over on the 10% Happier app, we have meditations to help you move into a more generous frame of mind from the likes of Sharon Salzberg, Jeff Warren, Joanna Hardy, and many of the other teachers you've heard right here on this podcast. You can check out those meditations by downloading the 10% Happier app wherever you get your apps and by searching for the word generosity in the singles tab. Okay, here we go now with Emiliana Simon-Thomas. Nice to meet you in person. I don't know if you remember this, but when I was writing 10% Happier, I used to call you to make sure I was correct on my research on a few things. I do remember that, but it was a long time ago. Yes. And I'm glad I was able to be helpful. I was just going to say, my memory was that you were really helpful and, and always willing to hop on the phone with me. So thank you, belatedly. You're quite welcome. It's a, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, your parents were Buddhists? Well, so my parents grew up in the Midwest, and one of them came from an Italian family and the other from an Irish family. And they were not Buddhists as young people, but I think their sort of early life spiritual experience left something to be desired for them, and they wanted to see the world in a different way, and they you know, got in the car with their, you know, minimal belongings and came to California. And 
as young people here, they found a community, and that community were people with a Buddhist leaning. And uh, yeah, so I grew up going to teachings, to temples. Um, I remember kind of crawling all over my parents while they were sitting still and, you know, keeping this sort of serene demeanor. I remember trying to take the sweets off of the altars. You know? <laughs> I think that's a no-no. <laughs> and I heard that when you would throw temper tantrums over, you know, not getting enough dessert, your parents would say life is suffering. Yeah. So <laughs> that's, I, yeah I don't know if the Buddha would have, <laughs> would have you know, endorsed it, the usage of his signature phrase. I totally agree. It's a little hard on a little kid. But, um, you know, I fought back. And in a strange way, it's fueled this lifelong quest for understanding, like, real happiness in life. So, so wh- how would not getting enough dessert <laughs> play into understanding real happiness? You know, I just didn't buy the notion that we had to always look through a lens of the potential for harm or disappointment or letdown. And I think that was the message I was getting that, hey, you know, I don't get enough dessert. I didn't get as, as much of a toy as someone else got or you know, we don't have as nice of a house as someone else. And even those people in their comforts are probably disappointed by various things in their lives and struggling in ways that I can't imagine. I don't think I picked all that up, though. I was like, no, sometimes I feel great. You know, sometimes I'm having so much fun, I can't even, like, get a hold of myself. And it's just laughter and excitement. And I'm not suffering in those moments. How do you define compassion? So I defined compassion, when I was studying it in the laboratory, I defined it in an emotional way. It was a specific state. It was the experience that you have when you encounter suffering. Uh, It can be in person or even in your mind. You think about some suffering, and you feel the urge, and you have an intention to do something about it, to help, to alleviate the suffering that you encounter. That's the experience of compassion as an emotion. So that separates it from empathy, which is... Yeah. It misses the action piece. Yeah. I mean, empathy, I think of as kind of necessary, but not sufficient for compassion. Empathy is really more simple, and it is our ability to resonate with each other and our ability to understand the meaning of another person's emotional expressions. But if you only have empathy, you have a lot of other paths you can go down that are not compassion, right? You can feel distressed yourself. You can feel, oh, I'm overwhelmed. There's, uh, I'm upset in, in, in being confronted with this suffering. You can kind of suppress any emotional experience that you have that is sort of mirrored from another person and sort of look apathetic. Or you can kind of meander down the road towards compassion. And that means you're not really thinking about yourself anymore, right? You're not focused on the potential for something to threaten you or the extent to which your physical experience is um, recognizable or familiar as your own pain or suffering. But you sort of channel whatever, whatever feeling you have into activating your care and nurturance systems, right? You're, you're actually orienting yourself as a care provider, as a nurturer, rather than sort of frenetically worried about the possibility that something could go wrong in, in your own right. So this sounds and is altruistic. Yeah. But it's also selfish. In as the Dalai Lama says, in the wisest possible way, because compassion is a ennobling, empowering, invigorating state. That's the way I think about it. You can imagine 
I bristle a little at the statement that compassion is selfish. Um, I well, think, you can blame the Dalai yeah. Lama for that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Your issue is not with me. Yeah, although um, it kind of is. It's interesting. Um, there are other ways that somebody might make the same claim because the last piece of compassion really uh, at a biological level is that it involves anticipating your potential to feel good about helping. That's a piece of compassion. Uh, we know from more recent work by Tanya Singer in Germany, she's brought people into the laboratory and taught them to meditate or had other meditation teachers teach people from the community for, you know, six, eight months. And she's varied, whether it's like an attentional focus kind of meditation or an empathizing kind of meditation where you're just really trying to feel what another person is, or if it's a compassion kind of meditation where you're really orienting towards uh, alleviating their suffering. You're, you're taking it upon yourself to be the hero and support the other. And um, those different practices do something different to the brain. And the main difference for the compassion practice is that you see a, a greater activation in reward pathways when people are given the chance to extend compassion. The same pathways that might light up when we get a lollipop. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Not and that I've had a lollipop recently, <laughs> but I do have a four-year-old. <laughs> well, they like lollipops. They do. So, yeah, and, and that's not—that's similar to other research showing that when we— um, when we're given the chance to be generous. So Bill Harbaugh at the University of Oregon did this study like nine years ago showing that when he, when he forced people to pay taxes, right, he made them win something or win money in a, in a little computer game. Sometimes they got to keep it for themselves. Sometimes they had to give it away to charity or sometimes it was going to pay taxes. And he measured what happened in the brain. This was uh, he, He's actually an economist and he was working with neuroscientists because economists are always really bummed out that humans aren't more rational, right? <laughs> that so we don't just there, act in total self-interest. There's a reason why it's called the dismal science. Yeah. <laughs> but what they found, and it was reported in science, is that when people are giving to others, their reward pathways act up or light up. So it's kind of like, what does that mean? Being generous is selfish? I mean, at some point, it just becomes like a weird, circuitous, semantic conversation. What it means to me is that we're evolved for generosity. Like, we have evolved as an ultra-social species, and it is in our biology that we find opportunities to be generous, to care for others, to feel compassion and extend it to others, intrinsically reinforcing. It's pleasurable so that we will do it again. Right? That's how the brain and the body work. Things that go together that make us feel good, we want to do again. Of course, we can learn other associations and we can have experiences that kind of dampen affordances in particular ways. But, but I don't think it means we're selfish. Or it's maybe selfish, just not in the pejorative. Fair. Fair. I think that the, the Dalai Lama calls it wise selfishness. Great. I'll take it. It's like the ninth. <laughs> uh, you could add it on to like... The Eightfold Path. It's like the ninth pillar in the Eightfold Path, like right selfishness. Sure. Would be just not, I, I paradoxically and ironically, not so focused on yourself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. N breaking out of what he calls self-cherishing. Yep. That sounds right to me. So if we are wired to be helpful and generous and caring, why are we the opposite so often? I think that there are a lot of other kind of habits of thought that we get into. I think part of it is early experience in our families and our communities. 
I think we live in a very individualistic culture now where ideas around self-interest and self-promotion and competition are kind of biased to be stronger than is actually really representative of what humans are able to do. I think that uh, sometimes, and, and there's actually an interesting new science, or not new science, but but new conversation about what goes wrong, what ends up leaving us in a place that we might uh, not be compassionate where we might have wished we had been or, or we see someone else and we wish they had been compassionate and they haven't. Um, one of my favorite researchers, Daryl Cameron, has coined this compassion collapse. And the way he's figured this out is that if you show a person a suffering victim, vulnerable suffering victim, that's usually a way to really readily uh, elicit compassion. Um, you can then ask them, you know, how, how compassionate do you feel and, and how willing are you to help? And you get these numbers. And then you can do the same thing, but instead of one victim, you can show six victims. You can do it again and show 18 victims. And if we were rational, as economists might <laughs> prefer, our compassion would go up each time, right? The suffering is going up, our compassion would go up. Um, that's not what actually this team found. Um, as the numbers of victims goes up, compassion sort of wanes off mm -hmm. and becomes flat asymptotically. And in further sort of delving into why and what goes on, what the researchers find is that people don't feel compassion in those situations where the numbers are of, of victims are really high because they don't feel like they can do anything about it. They feel unempowered. They feel um, like the expectation to fix it, right? We hold ourselves to a high standard when we want to help someone. But if we feel like oh, I can't meet that standard. There's nothing I can do for 8 or 15 or 10,000 people. I'm just, I'd rather not feel anything at all. Yeah, the most modern example that I hear invoked is the Syrian refugee crisis, mm -hmm. about which very few people were deeply concerned until we saw a picture of a little boy who had yeah. washed up on the shores and um, was no longer alive. Mm -hmm. And that picture went global. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden we had a, all of a sudden, my boss has sent me to uh, to Greece. Yeah, uh, and that's just the way we're wired. In some, it's, it's it seems like a design flaw. It's not just that there might be too many people for me to handle. It's also like an expectation that I'm going to fix it. And I, I bring this up because I think this is one of the challenges that people in healthcare providing um, positions deal with: having this training that leaves them with a sheer and objective expectation to fix the problems that they face day in and day out. And what we know is that there are a lot of issues that humans struggle with that aren't fixable in short term and that don't go away with some of the miracles of modern Western medicine. And um, it's just really hard if you expect yourself to fix something and then you can't. Right? You can't over and over again. And so people don't like having to behave in ways that are different than what they believe. This is classic cognitive dissonance. And so when you have to behave in a way that is different from what you believe to be the case about yourself or about the world around you, you tend to shift, not even very consciously, what you believe. And so you believe 
well, I don't feel compassionate anymore because I'm mm. unable to fix this, which means I must not be compassionate because I can only be compassionate if I can actually fix the problem that is in front of mm. me. And I think that's a weird sort of circular problem around some of the uh, situations where people aren't able to feel compassion anymore um, or somehow block themselves from feeling compassion. So how do we train our capacity for compassion? Gosh, I mean, for many, it starts with mindfulness. It starts with cultivating a greater awareness around what tends to happen in your mind when you encounter suffering. So what do you see yourself doing? Are you the kind of person who, when you see another person suffering, immediately judge them as somehow less worthy or deserving of their suffering? Or do you judge yourself as unable to do anything about it? Do you make some kind of quick cost-benefit analysis and go, oh, it's going to take too much work and too much effort for me to be of service in this moment, so I'm just not going to do anything at all? If we start to kind of interrogate those kind of reflexive judgments about other people and ourselves, there comes an opportunity to maybe unravel some of them and um, shift how we think about other people, how we see other people. I think uh, just practicing, uh, one of the most powerful, and it took me a long time to understand why why it worked, because it's a little bit out there. One of the most powerful practices for compassion training is called Tonglen, mm -hmm. and this is the exercise of kind of visualizing suffering that's happening out in the world and visualizing yourself as, as sort of like a, an existential vacuum cleaner. You're like, pulling in that suffering and, and sort of bring it into yourself. And then on the opposite end, sort of shedding it back out, you know, uh, shining it back out in the world. But somehow in your own self, you've transformed it from suffering to love and affection and support and caring, these more affectionate types of sentiments. So just to stop you for a second, so Tonglen is a Tibetan meditation practice. As I understand it, on the in-breath you're breathing in the suffering of either the world writ large or a specific group, mm -hmm. maybe anybody who's going through chemotherapy or a refugee or whatever. You're breathing in their suffering. You maybe even envision it as like a black smoke or something yeah, like mm -hmm. that. Yep. And then on the out-breath, and you're just breathing naturally, is mm -hmm. my understanding. The out-breath, you've kind of transformed it into some sort of healing thing. I got to say, the me of 12 years ago would have have a little bit of vomit collected in his mouth now, but, um, <laughs> but, and yet there's evidence not only from, you know, the historical fact of centuries of practice, but also, as I understand, the lab too, to suggest that this is actually has a lot of benefit. Yeah, I had a real hard time with it too. And I felt like it was too sort of woo woo. I felt like, well, what's the point? If you're going to sit around in a cave and just wish goodness for other people, all you're doing is, really helping yourself. I think the practice ends up doing something really powerful to change your habit of thinking about yourself in those moments when you actually do encounter suffering. So instead of going, hey, there's nothing I can do for this person, or there's too many people for me to concern myself with, I'm shutting it off. We go, oh yeah, I matter. I have this urge and this heartfulness that makes me 
want to do something about it, and that motivation is more powerful. So really, I think it's an exercise in motivation and intention setting. And that's actually pretty important. If you're going to have competing motivations and any opportunity to be of assistance to another person, if you're practicing the one which is focused on service and helping and support, that's the one that's going to win in real life, in those real moments. And so I think that's what, that's what Tonglen's doing. Let me just go back to selfishness. I know you don't like the word, <laughs> which gives me extra pleasure, um, which is maybe the opposite of compassion. Um, but two things. One, you yourself said that even though you just said that in those moments you can stop thinking about yourself, mm-hmm. previously, if I was hearing you correctly, you said that there is a cognitive piece around compassion, which is you get to kind of tell yourself a hero story. It, mm-hmm. it's, it feels good. It boosts your self-regard. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, while it is, I guess, on a very important levels, thinking about other people, it makes you feel good yeah. doing this. So there are, for lack of a better term, no, there are no better terms, selfish reasons to do this. You know, if that makes it more attractive, I'll go with it. Um, But isn't that our job? You're a scientist. I'm a journalist. But we should be making this attractive to people. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And one of the—I like that you're framing it this way also because I often am talking about the topic of compassion fatigue because there's this notion that compassion is somehow like a limited resource and that we have to kind of guard how many times we can— sort of draw from our capacity to care about other people. And at a certain point, we just won't be able to anymore. Like, it'll be empty, and then we have to go, I don't know, get a massage or have a fancy meal or an ice cream sundae, and then maybe we'll have some more compassion to give. I don't think that's how it works. And maybe it's precisely because of this kind of actual selfish quality to it. I think compassion is indefatigable. We can we can keep being compassionate because it's actually something that is fulfilling and um, sort of salubrious in our own right. Maybe we don't have to use the word selfish. Maybe we could just say there are benefits. Yeah. No. It's invigorating. It's healthy. It feels good. Yeah. Lots of other ways to say it that are less crass. Well, yeah, and it's doing all this stuff to your social dynamics. It's creating meaningful social bonds with other people. You know, if you're out in the world being generous and kind and supportive of others, that's your, like, source of support later, right? Mm-hmm. You, It's not that we do everything for the expectation of reciprocity, but certainly some of our relationships, our really close bonds, are reciprocal. And when we're supportive to others, they, they we're, we're of higher regard in their view. And um, we can count on them and they can count on us. And that social support is really, really, really important. It also turns out that thinking about a, you would think on some level that the way to happiness is to, you know, think about yourself more. Mm-hmm. But thinking about yourself actually kind of sucks. Yeah, and it definitely doesn't make you happy. <laughs> and compassion, in a way, because of that early step. So so we started to talk about what would you do to train compassion, and I talked about mindfulness, and I talked about Tonglen, and that's kind of one piece of it. But there's another or a few other important parts, and one of them is regulating your own distress, really becoming more intelligent about the meaning of what goes on in your body when you encounter another person's suffering. Because it is a little ambiguous. If I were across from you and you were very angry, my body is going to activate in a particular way that is pretty similar to how your body is. I'm going to have a sort of increase in the tension in my shoulders. My heart rate might go up. 
And in my own brain, it's real easy to think, oh, I'm angry too. I'm angry. Something unjust has happened to me. And that's not accurate. Nothing unjust has happened to me. Mm -hmm. It's happened to you. Mm -hmm. But if I get angry too, and even worse, what if I'm angry because you're angry and that made me angry, and then we have a conflict about something that really isn't there, right? There's no actual lack of understanding between us. There's only my lack of understanding of my own emotional kind of experience. And so being able to identify that physical state connect it to really what's going on around me, which is not, this reminds me of the last time I was angry and my brain understands that this means anger, but, oh, I'm like physiologically aroused, but it's Dan who's angry and I'm here and there's nothing making me angry. And so what can I do to help? How can I be part of your like fight against injustice? Like, or how can I help you, you know, channel your feelings to something constructive? That's hard to do. It's hard to kind of sort of get into that experience and regulate it and in a way that allows you to be that person instead of sort of more reflexively get angry and not be the person that you want to be in that moment. And so, yeah, exercises and kind of regulating your own emotions, understanding your own emotions are, are part of what it means to be compassionate. And I don't think anybody would argue that that is like a harm or that there's not benefit to that. There's a whole science of emotional intelligence. And and what I think is that, again, it's kind of, it, it's it's buried in uh, practicing compassion, being more emotionally intelligent. You said you don't think there is compassion fatigue. Is there empathy fatigue? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're empathizing in a way that simply you're sort of sponging emotions all day long and you're not relating to them in a healthy way, right? If I am a social worker and my greatest respect to people who do that kind of work, but if I am one of them and I'm hearing about, you know, deep and profound unfair suffering all day long, but I don't have kind of the training and the skills to manage my own sort of physical response to that and reflexive thoughts about it, I'm very vulnerable to burnout. You know, I end up in a situation where I just feel emotionally distressed all day long. And, yeah, that's not healthy. So the way to relate to it in a healthy way is instead of just feeling it is to put yourself in the mode of I'm going to try to help. Yeah, I'm here. I'm a human. My presence alone is a help, number one. And that's, again, a little bit of the Tonglen, like just being here as a human, looking at you, sharing your presence nodding my head and and looking in your eyes, conveying availability as a person, that's beneficial in pending the dynamic and the cultural agreement. You know, maybe I put my hand on your shoulder Mm -hmm. and, and offer you sort of a comforting touch. There's lots of, you know, controversy about touch and the meaning of touch, but one may argue fairly that in the U.S., we are pretty touch-deprived culture, and we're not using touch in the intelligent and pro-social ways that we could to be as supportive to each other as we could. More of my conversation with Emiliana Simon-Thomas right after this. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store 
or tmobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns, quince.com slash happier. I heard something interesting recently in terms, I started to think about when you talked about when we pivoted into the development of compassion, mm -hmm. the, the training of compassion. And by the way, we skipped over the fact that training that is possible in this area uh -huh. is incredible. Yep. I mean, that's a huge headline mm -hmm. that we know compassion and connection makes you happy mm -hmm. and you are not stuck with whatever you think your levels of compassion are that you can get better at this. That's a life altering realization. Um, my parents, who I've always loved, my parents were and are great, but they've had some health issues of late and it's forced my brother and I to forced maybe the, the wrong <laughs> time, but it's provoked my brother and I to lean in and do, to really get involved. And I noticed that my level of love for them, while always high, seems higher, you know, to me. There's just more tenderness there, I think, for lack of a less syrupy term. And it just seems to be an example of how this can work. Yeah, I think that's a great example. And your experience, there's probably ways that we could measure that change in your experience because of some biological things that happen when you're being a caregiver, when you're in the presence of somebody who is alleviated by your presence, mm -hmm. right? So we don't just empathize with other people's suffering. We empathize with relief. Mm -hmm. Like, it feels good when you know that something that you have done alleviates somebody else's pain. And when they're grateful to you, that's a whole other topic that we could talk yeah. about. Yeah. But um, we kind of cement our connections by having those 
caring and supportive interactive experiences. And what's going on? Well, our both of our bodies are releasing oxytocin. Oxytocin is this neuropeptide that makes us feel trusting and affectionate and pleasure around each other. So we're basically strengthening these linkages between the reward pathways and the social cognitive pathways that sort of tell us what this relationship means. Um, so... Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It's kind of a practice makes perfect. You guys can't see her face, but she really lights up when she's talking about peptides and uh, <laughs> reward pathways. Yeah, sorry. You're like a, a love nerd. That's awesome. So I said before that love, I think, is too narrowly defined in our mm -hmm. culture. It's often thought of as sort of romantic love or maybe parental love. But mm -hmm. Well, I'd love to hear you riff on that in and of itself, but also to talk a little bit about so we have clear terms in sort of the lexicon of positive behavior. Like, mm -hmm. what's the difference between kindness and compassion? Mm -hmm. What is niceness? What does that even mean? What does love mean? Do you have a sense of how we can use these words with some precision? Yeah, I do, although I can't claim to have the perfect taxonomy of distinction between emotion terms. I do work with Dacher Keltner, who's a professor here at UC Berkeley, and he has spent his career sort of exploring the space of emotions. And there are clear ways to differentiate different states. Uh, love is different from kindness in that it, um, it really isn't necessarily about, um, about a generous behavior so much as a, an affectionate relationship between people. And I would even wonder if kindness is an emotion. It's not really an emotion. It's more of a behavior, right? I'm, I'm being kind to you. Love is different from compassion in the kinds of circumstances that arouse those two different states or those two different experiences. Compassion really is a response to suffering, right? Love, you can feel love towards someone's suffering, but it doesn't necessarily mean you want to help, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it's helpful to distinguish them so that we can study them, mm -hmm. right? It, it, you know, semantically or poetically, there's a lot of overlap, right? I'm not going to get in a big argument with, with a songwriter about what's different or similar about or them. Or roomy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But I do think for scientific purposes, differentiating compassion as being a specific response to suffering as opposed to love being about a response to sort of an opportunity for collaboration, for a relationship, for forming a relationship bond, or as you suggested earlier, for, you know, a reproductive experience, <laughs> <laughs> to put it not very romantically. <laughs> um, you know, there are variants of love. Um, you know, one of my favorite love thinkers is Barbara Fredrickson. I don't know if you've spoken with her before. I haven't, but I know I, I'm She's incredible. And, you know, she wrote her book Love 2.0. And basically her point is, like, we've got love all wrong. Love is not this, like, you know, flowers and chocolate and, you know, lingerie thing. Love is any time you're with another human and you're just having a trusting, biologically resonant moment, right, where you're exchanging goodwill and understanding and benevolence. Like, mm -hmm. that is a moment of love. And it doesn't mean as much as we like to think it means to have those moments of it love. It can, but it— It can. Yes. Absolutely. And I think her argument is, like, 
in a similar <laughs> similar way that I like to say that we're indefatigable in terms of compassion, I think her claim is that we also have an, an unlimited capacity for an opportunity to experience love. Like we could experience love all day long with the range of different people that we interact with just by not assuming when we encounter someone that somehow they're a threat or, you know, they're somebody we need to compete with or defend ourselves against. And we have so many opportunities to interact with each other in ways that can leave us with the benefits of a, an experience of love that we don't necessarily exploit. But aren't there pitfalls here where we could get walked all over or don't we need to have our guard up at times because there are people out there who mean us, mean to do us harm, et cetera, et cetera? You know... None of this is like a this is the only thing you should ever do kind of position. Kale is really good for you, but you shouldn't exclusively and solely eat kale for the rest of your life. Compassion and love, really great. You know, how much can you get into your day? It's going to help you exercise, sleep, like healthy levels of sleep, but you don't go then and sleep 24 hours a day, right? So yeah, there are situations where we need to be discerning, right? Compassion doesn't mean that we just excuse uh, malevolent behavior, right? We don't not hold someone accountable because we feel for their suffering that might come from having to hold themselves accountable or being held accountable, having to face the punishment tied to their unethical behavior. Compassion doesn't mean that we just, like, throw it all out and let everyone get away with everything so that they don't feel sad. That's not what it is, right? There's still a discerning quality to it. And the same is true of love. Yeah, if somebody is threatening you, or if you can tell just by being in front of someone that they mean to do you harm, and we're pretty good at that, that is not the right person to try to engage with in a way that puts yourself at risk. I just think that we tend to err on the other side mm. of the realm of possibility. We tend to not look up at people. We tend to see others as getting in our way and feel exasperated by the things we have to wait for because of other people more often than is helpful. I don't think that there's as much out there around people getting hurt because they try to start up a friendly conversation with somebody in line at the grocery store. You can get hurt for if you trust the wrong person, but that's again, just goes back to the fact that we're not saying just trust everybody blindly, but striking up a friendly conversation in the elevator is unlikely to be super risky. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, uh, long-term relationship dynamics have a lot of other moving parts and pieces to them, and trusting somebody who isn't our ideal match is tricky. And, um, you know, I do think that part of compassion, <laughs> and this is a whole other topic and we don't have to go deeply into it, but part of compassion is kind of 360, and that is really applying the same concern about suffering to your own life circumstance. So self-compassion. Yeah, self-compassion. Yeah. You know, we don't always have to be around other people. We don't always have to be serving others. There are times when we're reflecting on our own accord, and it's important to be attuned to what it is that is causing us harm. Maybe it's our own choices. Maybe it's our priorities. Maybe it's another person who we're choosing to spend time with or share space with. And it's important to, instead of being self-critical or blaming ourselves for things that might be going wrong, to, to honor the fact that we deserve not to suffer as much as we hope other people won't suffer. 
This is an interesting topic that comes up in kind of like our selfishness discussion around whether selfishness is okay or not or whether it's wise selfishness. Self-compassion is hard for the Buddhist contemplatives to kind of embrace. They're like, what do you mean? No, that's about the self. We shouldn't have self-compassion. Compassion is about other people. But when we explain that, you know, in the West— there are people who their inner voice is really hostile. Uh, who, there are people. Are there people who, for whom that's not the case? The yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I think m- many of us, and particularly again in our kind of individualistic competitive culture, come up with a sense that if we've done wrong, it's something that, you know, reflects some core error in our being, some, you know, deficit that we should be ashamed of. And I think self-compassion is a way to kind of reorient and not necessarily apply that hostile self-critical voice, but instead to recognize what out in the world is not helping us flourish and what in our own mind is is also potentially harmful. Sometimes that's other people. Simone Schnall did this great study where she stopped people in front of this grassy hill and was like, how, how steep do you think this hill is? She asked people walking alone. She asked people who were walking together with friends. People walking together with friends thought the hill was less steep than people walking <laughs> alone. Okay, the friend's not going to carry you up the hill, right? There is no reason for that other than that we basically consider each other a resource. When we're with others, the world is an easier place to navigate. So, I mean, I think that, like, foundational knowledge is is not necessarily obvious. There's not a lot of people who go, oh, yeah, I knew that, right? They might go, oh, yeah, I guess I like being around my friends. But there's still a strong, like, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, I can do it myself. I'm in charge of my own destiny. And... Whatever I can do on my own is, like, the most important. You talk about how key component, the happiest people all have social connections and social support, I mm-hmm. believe you said before. Yep. What if you have social anxiety? What if you have trouble making friends? You know, what if you, you're listening to this and you're thinking, wow, I don't, I don't actually have that many close friends. What do yeah. you do about that? Yeah, well, it's not a quantity thing. It's a quality thing. And I get this question a lot, but framed a little bit differently, which is what if you're an introvert? And how do introverts do this? And isn't it unfairly easier for extroverts? Well, extroverts tend to score higher in happiness on average. That's just what we see. They tend to look back and consider their life as something that they've put on a higher number when you ask, you know, one to seven, how happy are you? And then the good part of the story for introverts is that when they do stuff that we know is good for happiness— it has a bigger effect on them <laughs> than it does for extroverts. So, for example, random acts of kindness, right? Great. It's a bumper sticker all over Berkeley. But it's also really a scientifically demonstrated impactful happiness practice. You can just decide, hey, for the next 10 days, I'm going to open that door for the person who I see who's carrying two bags. I'm going to say thank you in a more specific and um, kind of extended way to my spouse. I'm going to offer help to somebody who I see who looks like they need it. Whatever it is, little things, little random acts of kindness. I'm going to tell a joke to a colleague. It can be pretty simple. It increases happiness. But it's a lot harder for an introvert to go out and do that Mm -hmm. in the world, especially the socially interactive ones. But once again, when they do them, they get more out of it than the extroverts do. So, yeah, being socially anxious, your road is a little bit harder. 
but you get more out of doing it. The other uh, term or phrase that often comes up in this kind of conversation is the whole fake it till you make it. Yes. Can you fake it till you make it? Can you go out there and just say stuff? No, not if you don't mean it. Not if you don't really want to. No, nobody's going to force a person to be happier. If you want to and it's hard and it puts you a little bit out of your comfort zone, yeah, then it totally works. Then it's really helpful. I say go for it. More often than not, it's going to help and uh, lead to a bigger upswing of happiness than it would for somebody who already kind of does this stuff. Final question for me, I think. The fundamental proposition here is that it feels good to be kind, to be compassionate. Doesn't it sometimes feel good to be a little mean? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think there's something called the cheater's high, right? And that is that one of the reasons we might cheat or might do something ethically questionable or immoral is— Getting away with it. Yeah, just the sheer kind of— I did something that nobody knew about and got a reward for it. Breaking the law. Yeah. 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 Um, That's real. I know that feeling from when I was a kid. (laughs) I mean, I used to break things and including the law all the time, and it felt – it was fun. Yeah, it's kind of fun until you have to face the consequences. And then over time, facing the consequences repeatedly, you realize, "Ah, I'm not sure that that short-term buzz was worth the long-term consequence. Well, even if you don't get caught – there's somebody, it's a great meditation teacher, who said that, you know, karma, I mean, you don't really get away with anything. Yeah. Your mind is keeping score. Mm-hmm. On some level, it feels bad to hurt other people. Yeah. And yeah. so that is a consequence in and of itself. I believe that to be true. I don't know that there's empirical research that necessarily backs that up yet. I don't know. I mean, so there's survivor's guilt, That's a known phenomenon where if you and I went to battle together and you were killed and I wasn't, I might spend a long time feeling really terrible about the fact that you suffered or you lost your life and I don't know why I didn't. Mm. It doesn't seem fair. We don't like unfairness. And I think that could be the, the kind of real nugget behind feeling badly about getting away with cheating is that ultimately... We perceive that yet to be unfair, and we don't like unfairness. Humans really are bothered by inequality, by unequal distribution of resources. It's not like the normative circumstance for such a social species where we need to be collaborating and and coordinating effort to be successful. So I think even when we get the windfall of a cheat, the unfairness does end up kind of still in there, and it still does chip away at our sense of of ease in the world. Uh, it may take a long time. Some people may die before they ever really struggle with it. Do you have time for one more? Yeah, for sure. It's a small one. It's super easy. Okay. Are human beings fundamentally good? I think so. I think we're born good. I think uh, when Is there I, evidence for that? Well, so researchers who study infants and toddlers will show them puppets, and some puppets act really nice, and some puppets don't act nice, and the infants like to look at the ones that are nice. You get a little older, and you bring, you know, nonverbal toddlers into a laboratory setting. This is Felix Warnikin, and videotape them kind of interacting with an environment where there's an adult in there who's not really playing with them, but who's also kind of moving stuff around. If that adult 
can't quite do what they're trying to do. Like maybe they have a, they're carrying a stack of books and they walk over to the cabinet and they can't open the door. Kids will come and open the doors for them, like spontaneously. The adult doesn't have to look at them. Nobody's like, good job, or hey, you should open the door. Like they're not getting directed or reinforced. They're seeing that there's someone who needs help and they're helping and they do it all the time, over and over again. There's tons of videos from this lab showing kids helping over and over again. That's not to say that humans don't have self-interest as part of their repertoire. Uh, Humans need to protect themselves if there's a real threat. And there is a calculus and a decision that goes on between What's, you know, what am I doing to make sure that that I am going to survive and how am I going to best contribute to this collective that is also really important to my survival? I think that humans are more good than evil. And um, I think a lot of what we end up doing in the world has to do with habits has to do with culture and practice and education and experience. But really, whenever we can kind of channel and strengthen those abilities that I would call pro-social, that tendency to attune to others, to be responsive, to concern ourselves with the welfare of others, to find delight in the pleasure and enjoyment of others— the better off we are, the healthier we are, the longer we live, the happier we see ourselves. So being good is really the route to a better life. So I kind of think humans have to be good. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it has consequences. Your happiness has global consequences. In other words, the more kinder you are, the happier you are. Also, by the way, the world's a better place. Yeah, absolutely. So it's all intertwined. Feels that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's been a real pleasure to sit and talk to you. Is there anything? You've got like all these notes in front of you. Is I know. there something that you wanted to talk about that I didn't give you a chance? You've like math equations there. Oh, it looks that way. It's not really. I think that I just. That says plus and equal. That's... Oh, you know, yeah, I do. Well, when I talk about stress and resilience, it's one of the opportunities for me to really showcase compassion. Because what I think happens with stress is that one of the paths is, and this is one of my plus signs, is stress plus, and then there's a circle, and inside that circle it says rumination, self-criticism, and stoicism. So these are ways that we relate to our own anxiety or stress or feeling that we don't have the resources to handle whatever challenges we're facing. And when we relate to that experience, again, by thinking about it a lot and worrying about what the implications are or by just coming down on ourselves in a harsh way and saying we're never going to amount to anything, everybody hates us, we're always going to be hated by everyone, or we're just like, forget it, I'm not going to feel anything. I'm just going to hold this down because I'm fine. Everything's fine, right? Just uh, stifle it all. That way of being really is like the secret to chronic stress because that just like extends it out, keeps it in there and keeps it going. And I don't have to go into the mm, consequences, negative consequences of chronic stress, right? We know how closely tied it is to cardiovascular disease and, and unpleasantness and unhappiness in life and dysfunction in relationships. Like it's not a good thing. Alternatively, Can you relate to your own stressful experiences with compassion? If you can, 
you're likely to be of the mindset that you feel a sense of efficacy and agency and control, right? Because that's part of what it is to be compassionate. You're likely to be concerned about the suffering that the stress is causing you and to uh, actually kind of anticipate the pleasure of relieving that stress, which is a way of being motivated to do something different than what you're doing now. So my argument, again, is that by practicing and upskilling compassion, we end up being a person who can handle adversity, who can sort of rebound from setbacks and deal with difficulties in life. It's not about trying to shove them away or avoid them, but instead facing them with compassion. And when we do that, we're actually sort of ramping up our own resilience. So that's my little equation that I have written down there. Um, I also have a list of things that I think people do when they when they uh, that I that I call mistakes about compassion, right? People think that compassion is like taking on somebody else's pain. I think we already talked about this. I call that empathic distress, right? Mm. That's when I sort of really am like a sponge and I just I, instead of relating to your experience and understanding mine in a in an accurate way, I'm kind of getting lost in my own fantasy about the feeling that's occurred in my own body that really doesn't have anything to do with my own suffering. It's really your suffering. Um, some people think that compassion means you have to endorse the other person's actions. So um, you, I, I might think that the reason you fell was because you <laughs> did something dumb. And so uh, I don't want to be compassionate towards you because that means that I am saying it's okay to do what you've done. That's not necessarily true, right? I, 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 people make mistakes all the time. People make poor choices. It doesn't mean that we don't have to feel compassion towards their suffering and um, address to the extent that we can, the causes of their suffering. Again, that doesn't mean that we we um, absolve them of their poor mis poor choice or or misdeed, but maybe there are other ways to kind of help that choice not get made again that we can contribute to. People think compassion is weakness. I don't think that's true, and I think actually people who are most compassionate are actually the the most courageous, right? Because we're willing to be there to to put ourselves out there as agents of support for others. That can be hard. That can be much harder than walking away. So um, I, I don't think that's true. Um, the idea that compassion is somehow like costly, that it's this big sacrifice, that it's this big drain. Again, that's a very short-sighted rendering of the realm of possibility. Like when we're compassionate, we're actually acting in a way that will give us the, the most benefit, right? Both from a relationship standpoint, from a good feeling slash warm glow standpoint, and from knowing that we've done something that matters. Like there's so much of it that is actually uh, an advantage to ourselves. And on the costly thing, you know, this is where self-compassion comes in too, because obviously you can't, you know, just be vomiting compassion all the time mm -hmm. for everybody, you know, to the detriment of yourself. Yeah. So it needs to take that wisdom it needs to have that wisdom as part of it. I don't think compassion is politeness or courteousness, right? Compassion is much more fundamental than that. We come into the world with it. Infants cry when they hear other infants cry. Uh, that really is arguably empathy, but in a way that is like the seed. That's the beginning of our sensitivity to other suffering. Compassion is definitely not pity, right? Pity means that, yeah— we're bummed that somebody else is going through something hard, but we also think that they deserve it or it's somehow they're inferior to us. So it's not something we're concerned about. I don't know um, if we've covered all of your beautiful mind renderings over yeah, here. But, but, <laughs> probably enough. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, um, before I go, 
This just argues for bringing you back, by the way. But before I let you go off to viciously support your children's um, uh, sports uh, success at the expense of their competitors. If we want to learn more about you, where can we do that? Tell us about Greater Good, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so you can go to greatergood.berkeley.edu, and there you'll find daily articles. And what we do is we we scour the literature on how important our connections are, how valuable it is to be generous and cooperative, and how um, how much we gain from our belonging in community and our contribution to something greater than ourselves. We just and, and, and we write about these these scientific articles in a way that somebody who hasn't, you know, gone to graduate school or who hasn't studied these these disciplines can still access and utilize. We also have a website called ggia.berkeley.edu, and GGIA stands for Greater Good in Action. And what it is is basically a library of research-backed practices that we've kind of pulled out of papers and then written in really simple terms like, hey, you want to try mindful awareness practices? There's one up there. You want to try a gratitude practice? There's three or four for that. There's a few for compassion. There's a few for empathy. There's a few for um, relationships or connecting. So again, we're just trying to bring the scientists' um, insights and practical tools to to anyone who who wants to sort of uh, improve their own lives and um, and do so in a way that that we think is a little more promising than some of the other ideas that are out there. Oh, one more thing. Of course, if you want to get deep and you want to hear more and see more. You can find The Science of Happiness on edX.org. It's our flagship course, and um, we go into great detail on all the topics that we've been talking about in this hour. edX.org, you can search for happiness. Science of Happiness is one. We also have three courses focused on happiness at work, and um, we can talk about those in another another time. Yeah, but you definitely have to come back. Okay. I, mean, I, you know, <laughs> I can't force you to. I'd love to have you back. I'd be glad to. It's an honor, and um, as you can tell, I love talking about this stuff. Yes, it's awesome. So. Although peptides only came up once, but yeah. next time. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk about the vagus nerve, all oh, these other awesome. things vagus next time. Nerve. <laughs> can't wait. Uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Emiliana, once again. Really appreciate her coming on the show, and I'm glad we had a chance to air that again. This show is made by Samuel Johns, DJ Kashmir, Kim Baikama, Maria Wortel, Jen Poyant, and we get our audio engineering from the good folks over at Ultraviolet Audio. We got special help on this episode from Palace Shaw. And before I go, I always want to just give a hearty shout-out to our ABC News comrades, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. 
Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.